Welcome to Lung Cancer Considered, the podcast of the International Association for the Study of Lung Cancer, a global organization dedicated to research and practice advances in thoracic oncology. You can find all of our podcasts on SoundCloud and at IASLC.org in the news section. Hi, I'm uh, Marty Edelman. I'm the chair of the Department of Hematology and Oncology and uh, professor of oncology at the Department of Hematology and Oncology at Fox Chase Cancer Center. Uh, on this episode of the Lung Cancer Considered podcast, I am joined by Drs. Roy Herbst and Leora Horn, and we'll be discussing some highlights uh, of the 20th IASLC um, 2020 Lung Cancer Targeted Therapies Conference uh, in Santa Monica. Uh, Dr. Herbst is Professor of Medicine and Pharmacology, Chief of Medical Oncology, and Associate Director for Translational Research at the Yale Cancer Center, Yale School of Medicine. And Dr. Leora Horn is the Ingram uh, Associate Professor of Cancer Research at Vanderbilt Ingram Cancer Center and Clinical Director for the Thoracic Oncology Program. Uh, welcome, uh, everyone, and uh, thank you, Dr. Horn and Dr. Herbst, for joining me today. So this is uh, quite an event. You know, it's the 20th meeting. Um, you know, yesterday we talked a little bit about the, or rather Wednesday evening, we talked about the first meeting. So, Leora, when did you, you know, you you weren't with the original group here. How long have you been coming to this uh, meeting? So this is my 11th meeting, um, and uh my first meeting, I remember the first session was EGFR inhibitors. And it was almost with this meeting, whatever was the most exciting topic was what we would see first thing on Thursday morning. And we've really changed that as organizers that we try to have exciting data from day one to Saturday of the meeting. Um, and, you know, the, the whole part coming here as a junior faculty member, this has always just been an incredible meeting to hear about what other institutions are doing, to hear what's important in the field of lung cancer. And networking is such a big part of this meeting. I've met so many of the greats in lung cancer. I've made a lot of friends um, in lung cancer coming to this meeting. Um, and I think it's my favorite meeting to come to because it's a smaller meeting and it's an opportunity to talk and hear about what everybody's doing in their, in their different institutions. So... You know, at this meeting, clearly, you know, immunotherapies emerged as being the big uh, new treatment in lung cancer. What do you see as being the most important studies of the past year? You know, we had sort of this initial flood of positive studies. It's, last year seems to have been a little quieter. Yeah, you know, I, I think the immunotherapy story is emerging that these drugs work for 20% of the patients. And so what are we going to do for the other 80% of the patients? And when we look, you know, we have agents this year, there was a lot of data on new drugs being looked at for patients who have EGFR mutations. Um, there's now data emerging for patients who have KRAS mutations, but specifically KRAS G12C. We still don't know what to do for those patients who are ALK positive when they progress on their targeted therapies, similar for patients who are ROS1 positive or patients with RET or MET mutations. And so I think we're starting to see a reemergence of people interested in targeted therapies and what to do in those patients with acquired resistance. And small cells become exciting again. You know, we had a lot of data yesterday on small cell. It's no longer on Saturday morning when there's only 20 people left in the room. Um, you know, people, um, I'm biased. I think one of the most important data in small cell in the last year or more has been the Empower study. And last year, Caspian um, confirmed what we saw in Empower. Now, Keynote 604 is going to confuse us because 
it didn't meet its endpoint of overall survival. So we'll have to see what that data looks like when we see it either uh, later this year at, at a meeting. Um, but we're starting to see new targets and people looking at new uh, targets for that cohort of patients as well. So, you know, it's interesting because we have now three studies of immunotherapy and extensive small cell, all with essentially identical design, two of which had essentially superimposable results. And from what we've heard, the study with pembrolizumab is sort of qualitatively similar in the sense that the PFS is extended, but not OS. And you know, maybe it's a near miss, but is this a matter of sort of looking at, you know, and the question is, is are all these agents really very similar to each other or not? And, you know, this is, you know, in the non-small cell lung cancer space, you know, we had sort of somewhat similar results in that for the most part, everything trended the same way, but not all the studies were statistically significant. So is this a matter of kind of noise in the universe that maybe there are, um, you know, un, um, unappreciated uh, molecular variables that are, you know, if, if there are imbalances in these trials are, are pushing things one way or the other, or are these real differences of the drugs? So it's interesting. We took a poll on mm -hmm. Wednesday night as part of our quiz to the audience. And we asked people, are these drugs all the same or are they different? And 75% of people think they're different. Um, so, you know, why, why people think that? Why, I don't really think that's come out at this meeting. There probably are some differences. Some trials, you see more immune-related adverse events with certain agents than you do with others. So there may be some subtle differences that we just don't understand enough about these compounds. Roy likes to use the analogy of Coke, Pepsi, Diet Coke, Coke Zero. Um, and so uh, I, I think as time goes on, we'll know more about what the differences are in these agents. But the data is definitely not consistent across trials. So Roy, you know, when when we started all of these meetings, you you know there were it was a pretty small meeting. Um, not sure I was at the first, but I know I was at one of the early ones. And, you know, you could sort of fit everybody into like a room that was a lot smaller than where we are now. So, you know, clearly it's grown. Um, can you give us a perspective on, you know, how we've evolved in our thinking about targeted therapies? Um, yes, uh, the meeting has truly evolved from the time that we, um, we first met uh, in... Um, Aspen at the Ritz-Carlton 20 years ago. At that time, thinking of the room, maybe there were 50, 60 people there. Um, we had many fewer drugs. It was the advent of EGFR targeted therapies, uh, Cufitinib, uh, Erlotinib. Um, and, and really since that time, you know, the, that was uh, when those drugs were in clinical trial. Often with those meetings would be advisory meetings and, and clinical trial meetings to get some of the earliest trials going intact, ideal, um, you know, studies like that that were looking at drugs. I remember we, we used to think about what the biomarker would be. The initial thought it would be immunochemistry for EGFR. Um, we used to have pathologists there who would talk to us about that. The ideas of sequencing were just beginning to be brought up, but actually that didn't come out for three, four, five years. Um, but the meeting really took, uh, took hold because, you know, there were these new drugs. They were being used. Uh, we worked in a field of lung cancer where chemotherapy clearly wasn't cutting it, especially in metastatic disease. And we needed to find new things. So people, you know, a lot of even top, uh, top people in the field hadn't worked with these agents. So it was where new ideas were disseminated. And uh, I think it really, uh, you know, had historic uh, consequences. 
uh, and you know, over 20 years, look at all the new targets we have. You know, now uh, a new patient with lung cancer will probably have next gen sequencing, and there are eight or nine uh, relevant targets. Yeah, I I think you know clearly there's been this you know enormous advance not only in the treatments but in our ability to uh, uh, do diagnosis and you know actually identify targets to some extent. I guess with NGS we've identified more targets than we you know have drugs for for the moment. But what's interesting is you sort of reflect over these, you know, 20 years of meetings. And as I think back on them, you know, probably, you know, 90 percent of the drugs that we discussed didn't make it despite having, in many cases, very reasonable, you know, preclinical evidence. And, you know, matrix, a whole class is matrix metalloproteinase inhibitors, rexenoids, et cetera. You know, do you think maybe it's time to go back and look at some of these drugs in light of the fact that, we were essentially just combining them with standard chemotherapy or throwing them at an untargeted population. And we know from the EGFR experience that for the most part, unless it's a, you know, you actually, you know, treat the targeted population, you don't see much benefit and it can even see harm. I think, you know, repurposing of drugs is a very real thing to do. Um, we probably did discount some agents that had no single agent activity and Perhaps they needed a population, though. I still think that if something has enough activity, you know, one would see it, you know, as a single agent, you know, in a, in a large enough uh, phase one or two trial, uh, or would see some some signal in a combination study. You know, you wonder about that. I mean, let's face it, uh, track mutations are pretty uncommon. I have personally yet to see one. If you had a entrectinib in an unscreened population, it would be an ineffective drug. Um, true. But, but I think what happened is, you know, as we got so focused on the personalized and precision medicine, that immunotherapy hit us. And, yep. you, know, you know, it was also at these meetings that we first heard about immunotherapy. You know, the first patients were treated in lung cancer 10 years ago. But it really, um, most people really didn't, you know, you know jump on to this until four or five years ago. So there were a number of years where you know, we heard about this. We used to talk about vaccines. And um, having organized this meeting for the last 19 years and been here for the last 20, I should get some sort of medal or something for having done 20 meetings. But, but after all these, these years, I can tell you that we used to put the vaccines at the end, you know, you know, you know, even the meeting organizers went home by that point, you know, because, you know, nothing was happening with this. And you know why? Because the vaccines couldn't work, because even if you had a good target, if you didn't relieve the checkpoint, the vaccine probably wouldn't work. Um, so immunotherapy and lung cancer, everyone said, oh, what, what's, what's happening here? And there were a few people who were true immunologists that really understood it. And it really wasn't until six, seven years ago that we started to hear about some of these agents. And in the last four or five years, you know, the immunotherapy is, is, is actually pushing uh, the targeted therapy a little bit to the side. You know, it's almost an equal number of talks. And you know, we're seeing that at the, uh, at the annual meeting, at the annual ISLAC meeting as well. So but I think that, that this meeting really has helped us with that. But now here's where I think there can be a very unique aspect of this personalized immunotherapy. Wouldn't it be great if, if this meeting actually was personalized therapy meeting, we started to think, what are the biomarkers? And we've had a little bit of that. I'd love to see in the next years, maybe a little bit more discussion sections, maybe some working groups you know, to really figure out how to bring some of the biomarker. You know, we've had statisticians here who have taught us a little bit about uh, survival curves and non-proportional hazards, and, and to really pull it all together. There was a time, by the way, we had breakout sessions. That was something I, I really pushed for. The problem with breakout sessions is you break out in Never Aspen, come back. You know, Colorado <laughs> or Santa Monica Beach, and you know, you've broken. You're yeah. out. Yeah. 
So, you know, it's interesting you mentioned, you know, biomarkers, you know, and, and obviously some targets beyond, um, you know, PD-1 or even tumor mutational burden. You know, we heard from Dr. Skoulidis yesterday about, you know, SDK11 and KEEP and, you know, the importance of, you know, HLA. So it seems that there may be some emerging, you know, molecular markers, you know, in uh, immunotherapy. Uh, what do you see as, you know, some of these and, you know, uh, what kind of trials should we be doing? I think PD-L1 is the gold standard. There's no doubt that if you can measure it, you know, you know, you know, these therapies do work better in patients who have, you know, an adaptive immune response and, and high PD-L1. But I, I think the some of the markers of of a of an inert, you know, microenvironment or of a immune desert, you know, I think you know hold 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 some some weight like SDK11, and now there are some approaches to sort of target that, you know, with combining with PARP inhibitors or, or other drugs. I think TMB is is is, has, a, has, a, has a role. Um, the question is, how do you measure tumor mutational burden? You do it in the tumor. You do it by whole exome. You do it by a, a four or five hundred gene panel. You measure it in the blood. But, but I've been seeing more and more data to suggest that TMB uh, is a helpful biomarker. Will it help us in lung cancer where we also have high PDL1? Maybe, maybe not, but it, it could certainly help in other tumor types you know, to, to give us a group of patients who might benefit, let's say, in a colon or a pancreas or a Merkel cell tumor or something like that. So I think that's something, you know, to, to keep an eye on. But I think that the next group of biomarkers are going to come from two aspects. One are going to be the neoantigen prediction. So, you know, you know, looking at either whether it be a vaccine or what are the neoantigens, and you would have to actually both sequence the um, the tumor, uh, but also look at the the host to, to understand what's what's being presented as a neoantigen. And then, and then of course, um, you know, besides that, in neoantigens, we need the immune microenvironment. So it, it's uh, the innate immune system. You know, you know what's happening with uh, the macrophages and the myeloid cells, and they can all either stimulate or inhibit. I think we need, we're going to need to sort of look at that and look at it in both a qualitative but quantitative way. You know, what are the types of cells that are there? And as we do that, you know, hopefully we'll be able to determine vulnerabilities and, and take advantage of them. Both of you, uh, start with Leora. Um, you know, it's interesting. We, we've had a lot of studies that have combined various immunotherapy agents, and you know, with the possible exception of it being Nevo, you know, none are exactly been you know, successful. Um, but what's interesting is, is you know, what I would call sort of almost the resurgence of chemotherapy and to some extent even radiation. And you know, that the chemotherapy immunotherapy combinations have extended the benefits of immunotherapy in the low PDL1 population. So you know, what do you think is the future of that? You know, everybody or, or many people have felt that chemotherapy was not targeted, and yet it seems to enhance the results, and not only of immunotherapy, but perhaps with targeted therapies such as EGFR. So where are we going to go with this? You know, I think with the immunotherapy, the survival curves are immature, and there's definitely a separation of the curves, but I think it'll be interesting to see the five-year data you know, at five years, are those curves going to come together? And you've still got that same 20% of patients who are alive and well with the um, chemo immunotherapy combinations. So, you know, I, I'm going to interrupt for a second and say it's pretty amazing that we're talking about five-year data in advanced non-small cell lung cancer because I still remember how excited we were when the Susanap plus chemotherapy finally pushed the median to 12 months. So it is remarkable. But Roy, you know, what's what's the future with chemotherapy and radiation? 
Well, um, I think Larry Arnhorn did a very nice talk at this meeting um, that, that, that said it best. You know, certainly, you know, the, the trials, in the absence of anything else, some of the trials of chemo plus immunotherapy, you know, are, are positive. But, but you've got to think that there are more specific and better ways to, to activate the immune system besides using chemotherapy. Plus, uh, try to avoid giving chemotherapy to the patient. And my belief is that you probably get a few more patients to benefit because you're giving them all uh, immunotherapy. Maybe you're getting a few more of them over the, the, the early part of the survival curve because you know, you're getting a small response. Maybe they're you know, giving, buying them more time to allow the immune system to work. Um, but I would hope and predict that in the next five to 10 years, that will be supplanted by uh, combinations. Now, it might not be ipilimumab. Um, I'm, I'm on the fence about that. I think those data are, are, are statistically significant, but are they going to have a clinical impact? We'll have to wait and see. But I, but I do think that there are going to be ways to combine different uh, immune-activating agents, whether it be a vaccine, a bispecific antibody. Maybe if tumors don't have a lot of T cells, use CAR T cells. Or you know, Those will probably be hard for lung cancer because we don't have a unique uh, uh, target, but maybe uh, uh, cell therapy. You know, you know, uh, one thing that I think is very excited right now is exciting is to take a patient's tumor uh, uh, and T cells and, and make T cells against the tumor and give them back. I think that could be a way, or maybe genetically engineer in some way. Uh, I think that's going to be something we'll see more of. The chemo, you know, when you're, we're looking at the EGFR mutated population, PKIs, we now have uh, a series of studies from overseas which show that EGFR TKI plus chemotherapy is advantageous over just EGFR TKI, though we don't have it yet with osimertinib. Um, that seems to be advantageous, so perhaps it's time to readdress the issue of TKIs plus chemotherapy in patients with, you know, identifiable mutations. Right. Well, we heard from people such as Mark Chris here yesterday that they do that as standard of care. Here's a trial called Flora 2 that's ongoing. We'll ask that question. Look, the argument is if we don't cure anyone with this disease, you know, why not try something more? Um, to use that front line when you know that someone could get asimertinib and, and be stable and, or respond for many years. You know, was, I wonder about that, but you know, maybe when you become refractory to add chemotherapy in and keep the EGFR-TKI going, that could certainly be something that one, one considers. We're hearing yet a whole debate on this here at the meeting. You know, I agree. I, I tend to do that more of a single agent TKI, and when they progress, keep the TKI going off and, and add chemo in. I, I think the issue is similar for the patients on VEGF therapy. You know, you're taking a patient who maybe has to come in every three months for a checkup and a scan and now saying to them, okay, you have to come in every three weeks. So I think, and get a drug that's going to affect quality of life more. So I'd like to see the data from the floor too. Um, before I commit osimertinib and chemo, because I'm certainly not giving gefitinib or erlotinib, which is what these Asian studies have done up front with chemo. So, you know, I, I'm going to ask you guys to look into the crystal ball and tell us, you know, what do you see this meeting in five years? What are we going to be discussing? Leora? So I think we're still going to be talking about targeted therapy and resistance. I think we're going to be talking about resistance to checkpoint inhibitor therapy and, you know, as Roy mentioned, personalized therapy. Um, hopefully, we'll have another nice talk about another drop in uh, mortality for lung cancer patients and another improvement in that survival curve. Um, and I think we're going to hear more about the bispecifics, antibody drug conjugates, and 
who knows if vaccine therapy will reemerge. Right. Um, I think in the next five years, we'll see some of the first results from some of the adjuvant uh, uh, trials. And uh, I think that's going to be, be huge. Because if that, that, uh, these agents work in that setting, that's going to truly change uh, how we look at things. I think we're going to be personalizing immunotherapy, whether we want to or not. You know, right now, there are all these different drugs and targets. That's good. Um, but we're going to have to pull it all together into some sort of program. And I think, you know, everyone says it's taking too long. No, it isn't. Look how long it took, you know, you know for the whole PD-1, pd one story to develop. And then even then, the, the biomarker, you know, and, and that, that was a drug targeted against a specific, you know, you know, something. So I think something will emerge. It is going to require more collaboration. I think one of the things we probably should do in future years is, you know, try to set up, you know, I know we still have LCMC4, but we might need some sort of collaboration with informatics, with sequencing with immune profiling among all of the centers to try to figure it out. Also bring the pharmaceutical companies in. But I think the meeting probably will end up someday being called targeted uh, ther uh, targeted and immunotherapy for, for lung cancer, although maybe immunotherapy becomes targeted therapy. And if that happens, we don't have to change the name. Okay. Well, with that, I think we'll uh, uh, end this podcast. Thank you, guys. Thank you very much. Thanks to the ISLC for allowing us to do this uh, podcast. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you for listening to this podcast. Visit the news section on IASLC.org for more Lung Cancer Considered podcasts. And please like your favorite episodes on SoundCloud and share them with your friends and colleagues.